Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 321. And on today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to Richard Faramond about his biography of Field Marshal Lord Birdwood during the Great War. Richard spoke to me from his home. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? My name is uh, Richard, Richard Faramond. I, uh, in school, I enjoyed history at O-level, that dates me, but... Uh, my enthusiasm to do double maths and physics in those days precluded anything artistic at A-level. Um, I went to Sandhurst and the military history at Sandhurst was quite fantastic and that uh, uh, continued to whet uh, my appetite. I then went in 69 to Northern Ireland and a book came out at the time I was there, Holy War in Belfast. And uh, it was fascinating to be working in a place where you know you you went to bed at night, read a few pages, and you'd been there the day before, and then the next day you were reading on, and by golly, they were at it 30, 40 years later, same places, uh, and that interested me. And I kept my um, interest going, and I think um, it was just general military history that uh, that uh, I I started with, yes. So. Can you tell us why you felt a comprehensive study of Field Lord uh, Field Marshal Lord Birdwood was long overdue, and what what motivated you to to write the biography that was published uh, recently? Well, my father, myself, and my three sons all went to Clifton College, like uh, Birdwood, and of course uh, Earl Haig. Um, in my first term, about thirteen, my father came down, and uh, we went to see some of the buildings. And my form room was in a building on which Birdwood's name was painted on the gatepost. He said to me, oh, that's very good. And I rather sadly said, who's Birdwood, which wasn't uh, the the best thing. And he told me of Khaki and Gam, which I actually did read some years, some years later. Um, later on, in, in about the late 90s, I read a book on Holocaust Journey by Martin Gilbert. Uh, and in the foreword, he lists the students who participated in his master's course on the Holocaust. And when I read what their backgrounds were, I thought to myself, I could do that, which was probably a bit arrogant. But that kept me going for the next 10 years until I actually retired from my professional lives, both army and space industry. And uh, I decided to do a history master's. And I chose Imperial and Commonwealth history at King's. And I had to come up with a dissertation. And one of my ideas, I had about three, was uh, Birdwood. And uh, my professor uh, encouraged me to do my dissertation on space because they changed the title from Imperial and Commonwealth history to World History and Cultures. And so I did my dissertation on the, the politics behind Britain keeping saying no to human spaceflight. Uh, but I did a couple of my essays uh, for my master's, both touched on Birdwood. One, his relationship with the Anzac, 
and another one on the, which I found interesting, the six commanders of the Dominion forces, Bridges and Birdwood for Australia, Godley for New Zealand, and Anderson, Bing and Curry for Canada. Uh, so I get became more interested, in, and then I was persuaded to do a PhD, and then I had this as a t- topic. I wonder whether we could start by looking at Birdwood's early life. Where was he born, and what was his sort of a social and uh, sort of family background? He uh, he was born born in India, and he came back with his mother at about the age of uh, three. Uh, his his family background was uh, uh, from sort of east of Plymouth in the countryside. There, the family moved across to Plymouth, and. Uh, uh, one generation was agents for the East India Company, and then the next generation sent someone to India. And by the time uh, Birdwood was born, his father was uh, a prominent member of uh, uh, the uh, civil service and uh, a judge uh, near Bombay. Uh, and so by, th- by the time he was born, he was uh, associated with, one could say, the the upper crust of Indian life. Now, your biography of uh, Field Marshal Lord Wordwood is often associated with his role at Gallipoli, but your book highlights his extensive and military and political significance throughout his life. Could you elaborate on some of these lesser-known aspects of his career that you explored in your research? Um, certainly. I mean, he he comes back, uh, he's educated in England, he makes his way finally to Sandhurst, He's commissioned early because there's a sort of Russian hoo-ha and they grab uh, some people who uh, only do six months. And he goes off to his Indi- his British regiment in India. The, the, I, reading his diaries and his autobiography, I feel that there was some point between his British regiment and his India regiment, he decides to really knuckle down and and work hard at his chosen profession. He masters at least seven languages, which if you go through the Indian Army list, is uh, is a prestigious number in comparison to others. He then becomes adjutant of his Indian Army Regiment and this wonderful organisation, the Governor-General's Bodyguard. And that position is responsible for all training, men and horses. Uh, so he becomes a, a, a good... Uh, good trainer so i don't think it's recognized that you know he's he's got these two uh strings to his bow that training and languages and then he he picks up experiences which certainly influence his later decision there was a thing about trying to get on active service and if you're on active service also trying to get a mention in dispatches a very uh, topical comment for this uh, podcast but People strove to do it. And if you didn't have a MID, you couldn't get a CB. Uh, and on the Tira campaign of 1897, he watches as the Dargai hamps are taken and then given up. And they come back down and they go up again. And they're taken a second time by inspirational leadership. I think that sort of puts in his mind, if I get up and take something, I ain't giving it up. And he certainly runs... Anzac with that uh, with that drive, except of course uh, the August uh, offensive where they get up and they don't hold on. He also at that campaign notes the complete lack of rapport, harmony, 
goodwill between commanders. And he notes to himself the phrase, the absence of confident and happy spirit so important on operations. And I think he carries that, that carries that with him. Um, in, in South Africa, uh, this is before he starts his long uh, time with Kitchen. He's there watching Spian Cop. And one of the commanding officers of uh, the Mounted Brigade, that he's the brigade major for by then, finally gets appointed commander on the spot by the distant commander looking through his telescope. Three commanders have been killed, and there's a drive to appoint or move someone in. But this fellow sees Thornycroft, the man's name, really fighting. And um, he, um, he, he gets appointed, but... At the end of the day, Thornycroft gives up and comes back down the mountain. And there's a sort of well-known bit of uh, description written by Churchill, who meets meets him as Churchill's going up the mountain and uh, Thornycroft's coming down. But there is a complete lack of communication between them fighting and those commanding. And I think he carries that with him to that first night at uh, Gallipoli. and he doesn't want people to be on the shore and the people on the ships not knowing what's going on. And so he um, uh, makes sure that that doesn't happen. So those are some of the the, the lesser known things. Um, one of the criticisms of him is that he's not a staff officer. But if you look at his uh, papers in the National Army Museum, when he, after the war, he goes off as assistant military secretary to Kitchener in India. And Kitchener gives him the task of reorganising all the cavalry and infantry regiments of the Indian Army and putting them under one joint organisation rather than Bombay, Calcutta, Madras. And this is achieved with amazing harmony. And I think anyone who hears that, who's had any association with reading the newspapers about regimental reorganization thinks how the heck can you reorganize 120 plus regiments and not cause any offense and people actually write in to say it's been well done and uh, um, and if you look at the staff work which is in his arm it's uh, it's very impressive and finally uh, i've mentioned churchill and because of their association churchill writes the forward to Birdwood's biography, autobiography, and uh, he finishes his foreword, Churchill, by saying, Lord Birdwood's letter to me also tells me that as captain of Deal Castle, which he'd been given, he is the vassal of the warden of the Sankports, which, of course, Churchill was then. And Churchill finishes with the last sentence of this uh, foreword, I shall not be the first to appreciate a brilliant staff officer. So for someone who is often commented as not a staff officer at all, uh, one, he displayed admirable staff work in support of Kitchen. And in later life, he's even complimented. So those are some vignettes of uh, lesser known aspects of his career. Now, in your biography, you challenge the traditional characterization of Birdwood as an easygoing and, quotes, fortunate officer, shedding light on his hard work, competence and command ability. Could you discuss the factors that contributed to his success and the complexities of his career? Well, 
I mentioned that he did his obligatory year and a bit with a British cavalry unit a regiment in India, and then he went to his Indian regiment, the 11th Bengal Lancers. Two things are clear. He liked his Indian soldiers, and he worked at developing a relationship. And he found that a way to learn the languages was take one of them, there were a number of different, uh, you know, Dogras, Punjabi, Muslim, and whatever, in the regiment. And his early morning riding was a way of getting getting to learn their languages and to um, to master a, 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 I would nearly say a love for the for for the for the soldiers. Yes, he did have he did have an affection. Um, so and he made to a way seemed to be successful at people liking. So he he worked hard and was liked. But is that make him easygoing fortunate? I I I don't think so. I think there's a little bit of jealousy. He he did work hard, but he was he was amazingly liked. In my research, I went to uh con- contacted Peterhouse, which he became master of at Cambridge, and the um, the historian there said, Oh, he was a very popular master. And I thought, gosh, you you weren't even born when he was master. And uh, I was church warden in my little village church before we, we've moved since then. And the other church warden was a member, a past member of the Blues and Royals. And um, Birdwood in later life was colonel of the Royals. Sorry, the Blues. And the Blues, not the, it be, later became the Blues and Royals. Uh, colonel of the Blues. And he said, oh, he was a very popular colonel. And again, he hadn't even been born when, you know, Birdwood hung up his spurs in as 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 for that job, um, but he 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 was he was popular, and of course the greatest example of his popularity and getting it right was when he arrived at Egypt in 1914. Uh, Kitchener had summoned him to take over the Australians and New Zealand, and whoever you read. And with the Australians, there is a certain pride in their scruffiness and, you know, just laissez-faire approach approach to life and command and whatever. Birdwood turned up, and don't forget, he'd been adjutant of this uh, exalted governor-general's bodyguard, which was, abs- I mean, I've seen the the, 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 the successor, the, the president's bodyguard of India, absolutely immaculate. Um, and he never says a word to them. He never says a word to these people about their saluting, their dress, or anything. And something instinctively told him that's the way to do it. And he just got it right. And of course, having got it right, he, it was a great asset. But if he'd started off saying, you know, get these people to clean their boots, it would have been a totally different relationship. So being liked um, uh, is uh, uh, an asset to him, positive asset. And what was he like as an individual? Was he a devout man, uh, as many as many uh, senior colonels were at that time? Yes, he certainly. He was a fit man, and he kept himself so. Uh, I would describe him as having a quiet faith. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly church attendance features in in his diaries. Um, and just to digress, he kept a diary or from certainly his last year at school at Clifton till two years before his death. And there's a diary for every year, apart from six years, which don't exist. And they were six of the years before he met his wife. 
And I just think in later life, he went through them. Then he went, Mabel, no, we won't have her. You know, Matilda won't have her. Uh, and others where it's only an occasional mention, the name is really scored out. So there's there's uh, there's a there's uh, a lot of him, and and you pick up a quiet faith. He really loved his wife uh, and his children, and you develop a sort of how he's approaching life. And then his wife has a miscarriage, and that is a a great shock, and it comes across in his diary. And then some months later, she becomes pregnant again, and there is this man I've described as working hard you know, setting his course for a good career, suddenly nothing else matches the nurturing this good lady to a safe end to her pregnancy. And it's lovely, lovely to uh, lovely to see it. You know, he's suddenly not doing things at weekends he used to do. He's taking her somewhere and everything. So, um, and I think that's the faith, the fitness, and his love of his wife. That's, that's those are the bedrock sort of, characteristics for him and how did lord birdwood navigate the challenges of diplomacy throughout his career and were and what were some of the notable diplomatic achievements and challenges that he encountered well his father his father's position when he came back out from school and sandhurst immediately introduced him to dignitary so he was he was there um and in his first summer with his indian army regiment the local resident in mysore asks him, invites him to be his ADC for the few weeks of the summer. Uh, he must have been a success. And this and this comes across, you know, if he gets a job, he does it well. And therefore, he gets, a, he gets another bite at it or gets a promotion or whatever. So he, um, he comes back. And then, then uh, uh, this guy, guy becomes more senior and therefore he starts going up to similar with him and everything. Um, he then gets invited to be the adjutant of the Governor General's bodyguard, so he's he's into into that vice regal uh, society, and he stayed at that level with Kitchener for seven years. He'd done two years in South Africa with Kitchener, but seven years in India. So he was um, you know comfortable and au fait with that that uh, that level of uh, society. I think the the greatest result of this comfortableness is when he assumes command of the Australian and New Zealand forces. He strikes up a correspondence with their political leaders in Australia and in New Zealand. Uh, it must, I mean, these are extensive letters, sort of eight-page typewritten letters, you know, from a from the side of a gully on in Anzac Cove going back to the Governor General in Australia or the Defence Minister or, or the Minister of Defence in New Zealand. And I think they guaranteed that these these leaders of their two countries felt that their interests were being looked after wholeheartedly. I mean, they, none of them, as far apart from one possibly, had met Birdwood, but uh, they were delighted by his appointment and were delighted the way, the way they, they were treated. And I think he was comfortable uh, in doing so. And when when he when he uh, was only really commander of the Australians, he kept up the level of correspondence with the New Zealand uh, leaders, and his letters were sort of highlighted um, and sort of read out in Parliament. 
although he was nothing formally to do with um, Australia by then. Um, he, when they created the Australian Corps, and later on, uh, Birdwood was to be an army commander, they kept him, although there was a little, little bit of discussion lower down, but the senior generals were absolutely adamant that uh, uh, Birdwood was to re retain command of the Australian Imperial Force, of which the Australian Corps was a part, um, and obviously Monash took over, over the Corps in June 18. But he, he remained that overall commander, uh, and after the war he had uh, uh, a trip to Australia, and I think that was significant in how Australia handled its memory of the war, because the, the old Anzacs were keen to see him. And of course, they took their families along to see him. And, and most importantly, the widows and the mothers who'd lost sons came along as well. And that knitted that whole relationship together in that trip at the beginning of uh, 1920. Then, of course, he went back to India after the war. He had a prestigious command of Northern Command to start with. Uh, one episode that uh, is shows a notable achievement is the Viceroy asked him to share an inquiry into how the Sikhs were handling their ownership of Sikh temple. Now, to about and grab an army general to come and do this in uh, in such a political role, I think, uh, is uh, quite surprising. Later on, he goes back to him. Then he comes out again as commander-in-chief for five years. And I think his handling of particularly the Legislative Assembly in India uh, on budget matters shows uh, a bit of diplomatic tact. Um, I mean, he makes, I, I would suggest he makes a mistake in not going for uh, uh, an Indian Sandhurst as quickly as it actually happened once he'd left. But otherwise, I would say he shows a good deal of political acumen. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your research and obviously get the book in ready, readiness for Christmas? <laughs> uh, well, it's published by Helion. Uh, obviously, there's a... There's a well-known organisation uh, who uh, sell, sells it, sells it, sells it cheaper, uh, which I, I suspect many many people use, and I've seen it for uh, with lots of other uh, companies, even in the states. Uh, but yeah, Helion Helion is is uh, the publisher, and uh, I hope people enjoy reading because the thing that drove me to study him, I began to like him. And I remember someone saying to me when I started, oh, you'll, you, won't, you won't end up liking your subject by the time you've done months and years on. But actually, at the end, I did. And I mean, when, for example, he, uh, his wife died first, and he writes about putting up a plaque in a little church in the south of Link uh, to, to, to her memory. And he also goes there after he's finished commanding the Australian Corps, before he... Um, uh, takes over Fifth Army, and it's a sort of peaceful place, and you can picture him there, and the thoughts going through through his mind. And I just have a respect for those thoughts, and I grew to like him, and still do. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thank you very very much indeed, Tom. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>